Psalm chapter 5 is our text. Psalm chapter 5, I want to begin <clears throat> by reading to you a prayer that I received yesterday morning. As I was going about my day, it was from a member in our church. He's actually a deacon, and he sent me this message, and he said, and I want to share it with you because it is a, a prepared, thought-out prayer. Praying for you this morning, Pastor, specifically that God will cause His peace to come upon you in the midst of this storm, that you will confidently preach His word to His needy people, that you'll sleep good tonight, that your heart will rejoice in His promises, that you will drown in grace and mercy, and that you will be completely led by His Spirit and that his perfect love will cast out all your fears. Love you. There's a prepared prayer. There's a meaningful prayer, a sincere prayer. And of which I am so thankful for. And of which I bring to you mainly to illustrate, to thank God, but to illustrate and to point us to a, a prepared Prayer in Psalm, Psalm 5. Psalm 5 is a psalm that prays to God as one who faces dangerous things and is discouraged or easily or could be discouraged by enemies. This is a psalm that teaches us how to pray, especially by showing us his example. This is a prayer that even more so puts into question the common phrase, a good phrase in many ways. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Because David is going to say, uh-uh, you hate all evil doers. What's that supposed to mean? This is a prayer that prays imprecations or judgment on his enemies. God, judge them. Don't let them go free. But aren't we supposed to bless our enemies and pray for them? This is a psalm that worships God in faith and confidence and invites you and I to join him. I love what Dale Davis says in his commentary on, on this passage. He says, this is how he says it. He says, we begin in our prayer life by praying, Lord, teach us to pray. So that's Luke 11, 1. We should do that. In fact, godly, mature believers find themselves praying that all the time. God, and I, this is what he says. And I have a suspicion that the Holy Spirit has a filing cabinet, and there's marked in that filing cabinet a folder marked instructions for prayer. And inside among them is a copy of Psalm 5. Because in this psalm, David teaches us how to pray when we're in dangerous and lousy circumstances. And in this own prayer, or in his own prayer, he models prayer for us and provides us with a prayer tutorial so that as he himself prays, he seems to leave behind directions for our prayers. Looking at Psalm 5, we're going to see four things. Verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 7, verses 8 through 10, and verses 11 through 12. We see an example of how we are to pray. And we're reminded about who God accepts in prayer and rejects in prayer. 
And we see an appeal to God in prayer in the midst of enemies. And we hear a shout of confidence to a faithful God. Well, let's look at this prayer. Psalm 5, you see that it is to a choir master. It was meant to be the worshiping people of God to sing it for the flutes. And it's a psalm of David. David writes this. Listen to these words. And may God bless us with this psalm. Now and for the decades to come in your life. Here's David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings and give attention to my sound of my cry. My God and my King, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter in your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor, as with a shield. Amen. This psalm, if you're a note taker, I have four points for the four sections in this passage. They're on the back of your bulletin. If you're not a note taker, I encourage you to become a note taker. Because I believe that this will help you better pay attention to what I'm going to say in this psalm and to be able to retain it and to be able to apply it more in your life. Here are the four points. One, imitate godly prayers or people who pray. Imitate godly prayers. Two, know who God accepts. Three, Face your enemies with God. And lastly, confidently trust a faithful God. Now, points one and four are easier <clears throat> to at least talk about and sing. Now, two and three, while a blessing, have sharp elbows. They are, have rough edges and rough surface. And they're absolutely needed because all of Scripture is given by God and is for our, our edification and growth. Let's look at them. Number one, imitate godly prayers. What I mean to say is imitate people that pray and they're godly. Let's imitate David who prays. Look at verses 1 through 3. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. 
Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice to you and watch. David is crying out to God here. Here's a prayer by the Holy Spirit. And we should take these prayers given to us by God from the Holy Spirit. And we should be helped by them. Let's be instructed. Let's take principles and lessons from these verses. He's the godly but imperfect man after God's own heart. And here he prays, and we can learn. And as I study this passage, I wrote five observations that I think you would be helped by, and I surely am helped by, five ways in which we can actually learn and imitate this prayer. Here they are. Number one, just, this is not the main part of the sermon. This is five really quick subpoints. Number one, plead with God in prayer. Do you see David pleading with God in prayer? Give ear. Give ear. Give attention. This is the type of, this is, this is a pleading. And when we go to God, God is going to bring things in our lives. If we open our eyes and see that we should plead with him for. It, this is the kind of thing that, oh, I plead, please give attention, children. Listen to me or someone else. Help, listen to what I have to say. It is a type of pleading. And when we go to God in prayer, God is going to give us burdens and we need to have burdens in our hearts in such a way that we are going to plead with him. We are going to, he says here, give ear, consider my groaning. This idea of groaning is, have you ever, have you ever been in a place where you're so overwhelmed and you know you need to go to God and you don't even have words? You, you groan. You, you just have, this, that's, this word actually has to do with my meditations, my thoughts. Give, give attention to my meditations, my thoughts, oh God. I just encourage God's people grow to plead with God. We plead with God and we say, God, help me. God, heal me. God, bring healing to others. God, bring rescue. God, save people. God, help my son, help my daughter, help my grandchild, help my mom or my dad, help my coworkers. God, help me. I plead with you. I need you to do a work. That's the first point of prayer. Second thing I learned from these first three verses is that I need to know who I'm really praying to in prayer. David, David declares it. You see that? My king and my God, to you do I pray. My king and my God. David is saying, I know I'm the king of Israel, but I have a king that's over me, and I'm in submission to him. And I am nothing impaired unless I submit to this king with a capital K. And this king is God who made heaven and earth. And I call, and when I pray, I'm actually praying to him. Do you realize, friends, that when we pray, when we sit at the table and say grace and ask God to th- and thank him for the food, when we go to bed, when we go through all the things that we do and we pray, we are talking to the living God. In fact, Jesus said, and taught us to pray, our Father. We pray to our Father. And He's a great God. He's our King, and we are under Him. This week, God wants you to pray. He wants you to know and f- reflect on the fact of or who are you really praying to. Third thing I want you to see is 
the the priority of prayer by his morning prayer. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. You, I just, this is what stood out to me. He's prioritizing prayer because he's going to God in prayer in the morning. Friends, pray to God and pray morning and noon and night. Pray at meals. Pray when you're driving. Pray when you're in need. Set aside times to pray. But of all things, pray in the morning. Start your day in the morning. I think he prays in the morning in part because he's urgent and earnest about something. He has need. We need to get up and not wait till later in the day to ask God for our help. I mean, uh, weeks before Thanksgiving, I had a, a bad tooth. It was really bothering me. I needed to get taken care of. And it was bothering me. And if it bothered me at night and kept me up at night, do you think I would, and it was nonstop, do you think when I woke up in the next morning, I said, I hope I can go into the dentist to get the relief. Let's plan a late afternoon and late evening meeting with the dentist. No. I'd want to go in first thing in the morning. For God's people, we start our days and saying, God, I'm toast without you. I can't live the Christian life without your help. Please help me right now before I even start and have my breakfast. Even before I start my day, God, help me. And David cries out to God in that way. He prioritized prayer. And then fourthly, he prepared to pray. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice. It means I order, I direct, I I order and make preparation so that I can come to you and bring the sacrifice to pray. And God's people prepare to pray. It doesn't mean they prepare all these fancy prayers. I received that text. I think that that man that sent it to me was just praying and then he, he just decided, I got to text him and he just started to type things that were on his heart. He was heartfelt prayer requests and we prepare to pray by maybe writing things down that we know we need to pray and pray often for. We prepare to pray by making sure we get up on time. We prepare to pray by maybe having our Bibles and our coffee ready to keep us alert so we prepare to seek the Lord And lastly, David expected through prayer. And we should expect as we pray. We're talking to God. He promises to work and do a work in our lives. You've prayed for help today. You prayed for self-control. You prayed for help at work or school or with the difficult school project. Expect God to, to work in your life today in some way and look for it. This is what he says. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice and I watch. The point of that is I'm watching God. I've asked you for help. I'm watching to see you bring deliverance. It might not come in the way that I chose, but God, I'm looking to you. So let verses 1 through 3 instruct you as you begin to think about prayer in these ways. Oh God, would you please, please help me. Help me to earnestly beg to you, to seek you, to plead, and help me to come to you, the real God, and help me to prioritize it. And God, help me to prepare it. And God, help me to expect you to work. Now let's move to number two. Number two, Faith Church, know who God accepts. Verses four through seven. Know who God accepts. And what I mean by that, I think, is who God accepts in in hearing our prayers and who God accepts in general. And we'll save. Look at verses 4 through 7. 
For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Will you note who God, I want you to note from this verses, first who God does not accept, and then secondly, who he does accept. I mean, have you thought about this? I know that some of you have because you've told me that, man, I just don't feel like I can pray because I've just, I'm struggling with sin and I just feel so lousy. And I, don't, I, don't, I know it's the wrong way to think, but God won't hear my prayer right now. And there is a sense in which if you have not confessed your sins, you cannot approach him. You need to confess right away and he forgives you and cleanses you. But in this passage, David says some really hard things, some sharp truths. The truth, yes, truth of this passage is not in fashion in our day and probably has never been really in that great of fashion. Because David says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. That's that's okay for us to handle. Evil may not dwell with you. We can kind of stomach that. We understand that. We know that. Now listen to this. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors. That's another word for hate. You abhor the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. In verse 4, he hates sin and will not allow it into his presence. That we can accept. But in verses 5 and 6, listen here. He hates the sinner. Yes, I said that, and it sounds strange, doesn't it? He hates the sinner. Maybe you don't like me saying it. Maybe you don't agree with me. Think I'm wrong. Does David have it wrong? He says, you, God, you hate all evildoers. God, the Lord, abhors the bloodthirsty and the liar. Well, a few Psalms later, we read in Psalm 11:5, the Lord tests the righteous, but the, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And we might say, but I thought, I thought the saying goes somewhere in the Bible, right? God hates the sin and loves the sinner. And I want to say to you this morning, yes, in a real and a glorious way, he does hates sin, and loves the sinner. That is true. And I want to say to you, friends, you are to hate sin and love sinners. You'll come across, uh, everyone is a sinner, but I'm saying even those that are like big-time sinners, you are to love them and care for them and sacrifice for them and pray for them and bless them and try to help them. Ultimately, to see God But this text says he hates sin and the sinner. It does. And this gets us right to the heart of the gospel. Because you see, God finds sin and sinner loathsome, full of hatred because of his holiness. Because God is perfectly righteous. 
and right. He is perfectly holy in all things. He's pure and he is unstained. He writes six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 6. The haughty eyes, the lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a, bre- a false witness, and sowers of discord among brothers. He hates these things. Yeah, we know he hates sin, but you see, this holy God hates wickedness, and that wickedness dwells in the very spiritual fabric of every human heart that has ever been born. And this holy God hates until he saves us and covers us in righteousness. This is a mystery, this passage, this, this truth, I should say. God hates sin and hates the sinner and hates sin and loves the sinner. Both are true at the same time. He He hates sin because he's holy, and he loves sinners because he is love and grace. And we come to these verses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, when God is revealing his name, who he is, to Israel through Moses. And he says, this is my name, the Lord, the Lord. And he he says some beautiful things that we love to hear. He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquities and transgressions. We love that, and I praise God for that. But then he says something so startling if we're thinking logically. He says this, and then he says, but he will by no means clear the guilty, but he'll visit wrath upon them. How can that be? Because every one of us, everyone that even, whether it be Moses or anyone else would say, but I know I am guilty. I know that I am deserving of God's wrath. And he never clears the guilty, but he says he's all these things. He's, he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, keeping steadfast love. He's forgiving sins, but will no, by no means clear the guilty. That is the riddle of the Old Testament that leaves us with this tension. Well, how then can he not clear the guilty, but still show all of this love and care and grace? And the answer is found at the dawning of Christmas. It's found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer to the riddle of the Old Testament. How can he give be holy and hate sin and the sinner and love the sin, hate sin and love the sinner. And it's found in Christ and the gospel. I, we must never ignore hard, talk, hard words like this about God's holiness and wrath. We should feel the weight of God's righteous. I bring this, sermon, this part to the sermon to you because we should feel the weight of God's righteous hatred stunned that he saves us. Brother and sister, is he, if he saved you, we should feel this, this fresh, I can't believe he would do that. I was so loathsome in his sight, and yet he still loved me, and he came and rescued me. It is absolutely, what's the word? Amazing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like like me. 
I once was lost, but I am now found. I was blind, but now I see. That's the testimony of a once slave captain, wicked, vile man named John Newton, who God mercifully, graciously loved and saved. And I want to say to you, whether you're watching online or where you're here this morning, that it is absolutely true that God hates all evildoers and he hates and abhors the deceitful and the wicked and he will punish them forever and he will love you forever if you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save you forever. If you've already received that, rejoice in that. If you say, I'm not sure if I know that love, would you receive that love today? He did this by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to die in order to satisfy the wrath of God that is found in these verses that says he hates all evildoers. He hated them on the cross that Jesus took for us. And he rose from the dead to give life to all who surrender and fall on their knees, lift up their hands and say, I can't, I need your free gift and sacrifice. That is absolute grace. And so that is what David says is when, this is really important. The question of whether God will accept you in your prayers and in your life, can you think of anything more important? There is nothing more important than God accepting you. And there's nothing more horrid than God rejecting you. And David says in Psalm 7, God accepts me. God hears my prayer. But he doesn't say, well, he rejects all evildoers, but all, all good doers like me. No. Look at verse 7. He says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, enter your house. My claim to being heard in my prayer and accepted by God is none, nothing in myself. I have nothing to bring to God, only the abundance of God's grace that I've put my trust in. Friends, let's not get over it. Let's just start learning it. Let's start growing all our lives in this abundant grace of God who is merciful to even you and to me. We are called to love a world that needs Christ. And oh, we need to know this love and let's approach God in this love and let's share with others this love. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. What we need is this. We need to know that I was, I was worse. I was a worse sinner than anyone whom God says he hates. We all were. And we need to understand that the smallest sin is an affront to the holiness of God and brings down the thundering wrath, wrath of God, and he will someday. But God in his mercy has come to save us through Jesus Christ. And I hope, I hope you'll even see the shadow of Christ in these verses. Oh, let us pray boldly today. Let us go boldly before God. He hears our prayers. He loves to hear sinners who come having been saved and looking to him. Let's look at the third point, though. You see, what David does is he faces his enemies, the enemies of God, verses 8 through 10. We are to face our enemies with God. You have enemies. And so to David, listen to what he says. Lead me, O God. 
O Lord, in your righteousness, because of your enemy, my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. God, make them bear their guilt. O God, let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David had enemies. Saul, then the Philistines, his son Absalom later on in his life. Many, many enemies, including other rival kings. I have a friend, David Livingston. You know, I talked about him already in India. He has enemies, real enemies. They're people. They harass new Christians. In Hindu communities, they threaten to burn these churches because they're Christians, because they follow Jesus and not the millions of gods in the Hindu religion. They, the, these people are enemies that will go into their churches at night and urinate and defecate Places marked for the worship of Jesus Christ to insult and to intimidate and to drive them out. That's real enemies. Maybe you face hostility at work because, of your, because you're a Christian or at school or in your family. Maybe your enemies come to you as accusations. You're not so good. You're not really a Christian. You should doubt your salvation. That's this devil coming and saying, trying to rip out your faith and destroy your faith. Or maybe it's ongoing or constant plague of depression or anxiety and temptations of lust or greed or whatever it is. These are enemies that are always plaguing you. David tells us by example to face your enemies with God. First of all, he says in verse 8, Lord, lead me. In your righteousness. Make your way straight for me. There's times where we just need to cry out. God please guide and direct me. He, he does that. We need, we need this in our lives. We need to pray the Lord's prayer. Lead me not into temptation. But deliver me from evil. God help me. Lead me to live. And to talk rightly in the midst of my enemies. To love my enemies rightly. To think rightly about the situation. God please help me. Some of you, I've heard from you, you face enemies, you face trials and difficulties, people that try to make your life miserable. And Jesus, but here's the thing is Jesus in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. And even Paul says, honor all people. And he was saying, even bad come to this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. David prays imprecations. Or judgment on enemies. In verse 10, it's like, this is what David's bear their guilt. Well, that doesn't sound forgiving. God, let them all fall by their counsels. God, cast them out because of the abundance of their transgressions. They rebelled against you. Crush them, God. In fact, we're going to get to a lot of passages where verses after verse says, God David says, God crushed them and crushed their children and crushed them and put an end to their wickedness. Is this how we're to pray? Is, is, that, is that how we follow? Well, first of all, I want to say David was right in praying this. I don't believe David's sinning. This isn't hypocritical, Old Testament, pharisaical kind of praying. No, it's not. He is the representative leader of God's people. 
that they were, these enemies were attacking him, and he is right to say, oh God, for your name's sake, bring justice. Bring, bring, do not let the guilty go. Do not let the guilty go unpunished because they are destroying the faith of so many. But what this prayer is not is David was not praying some personal vengeance. This person has hurt me. Now, God, will you go get that person? I just want you to get him in this personal, petty, personal vengeance way. David cared about and loved the glory of God, and he refrained. He refrained it several times, you can read, especially in 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel, where he could have taken vengeance, and he said, no, I trust the Lord, and I pray that God would do what he wants to do. God, please help. So what about us? Well, I want to say there is a sense in which when we pray, we can find help in these verses, and we should pray, oh God, bring justice. Bring the the destruction of our enemies. But we pray it with an attitude that says, and God, help me to have no vengeance in my heart. Help me to have a forgiving spirit. Help me to love the evil in my life the evil people in my life like you do in one sense. And yet, God, would you bring justice? Would you bring mercy? Will you bring help? You see that God has a way in which he is established on earth right now. Someday this won't be the case. God has established a glorious way for his enemies to be destroyed. And this is how we pray. He destroys them in the death of Jesus so that he might raise them to life. If you, were, if you are saved, you are an enemy of God, and God destroyed you in the death of Jesus in one sense. He took you down and said, no longer you, but I'm going to bring you into myself and save you and raise you into a new life. And one of the ways in which when we pray for enemies to be destroyed in our lives, we say, oh God, would you destroy my enemies by bringing them to see the delusions of their lies and their foolishness and their pain and their hurt and help them to repent and fall on their knees and to call on you as Savior. Help me not to be like Jonah and be resentful or afraid for you to save my enemy enemies, but instead rejoice because I grievously sinned against you and you forgave me. And yet there is a way in which we cry out, Oh God, In the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, O Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord. And when we pray that, we're saying, God, come and bring justice and bring your vengeance and you are going to punish all evildoers. Oh, so there's this tension once again. Oh, God, help me not to have personal vengeance. God, vindicate your name and please bring justice. But, oh, God, would you, if you would be so merciful, take my enemies and convert them, change them. And change my heart towards them where it is wrong and sinful and bitter. The last point I want you to see is a glorious end of this this psalm, verses 11 and 12. And it instructs us to confidently trust a faithful God. Confidently trust a faithful God. In these last two verses, David invites us. It invites the congregation to trust in God and to rejoice and to exult in a faithful God with confidence. Look, at, look there with me. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. 
Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. David says there, he describes the godly, the faithful, the people that look to God in three ways in these verses. I'll do it from last to first. He calls them the righteous in 12. The righteous means they're righteous in God. Their righteousness, not a self-righteousness, but it's God of the righteousness. And they're seeking to follow God. They're also described as those who love God's name. And in the second part of verse 11, let all those who love your name exult. To love God's name is to say everything that God reveals about himself in this book, I am going to learn to love. I'm going to savor delight. Any, any wrong views I have about God, I want them to be corrected by this book. And if I, at first I don't like this view of God that the Bible shows, I need to change and I'm going to look to God and I love his name. His name is his character, who he is. And he says, all who love his name, let them exalt. And the other, we find at the very beginning of verse 11, all those who take refuge in him. This is a great study. I would encourage any of you to just do a Bible study on what does it mean to take refuge in God. The Psalms use this over and over again. To take refuge is to confidently run as a very weak and needy and defenseless person into a place of the only place of security and stability and help. And that only place of security, stability, and help is God And he says, all those who take refuge for their sins, I got sins, I have a sin problem personally, I run to the only place that can take care of it. I have an enemy problem, they're trying to destroy me, I run to the only place that will give me help, it is to God. I have have all these inner demons and struggles and temptations, I I run to the only place, I flee to refuge in God because I love his name and he is my strong tower that I hide and he protects me. And I would say, if you are a believer, if he has saved you, he is your refuge. Run to him. Romans 8 is such a beautiful cross-reference to almost all of these psalms that talk this way. Because Romans 8, especially the second half of Romans 8, give us promise after promise to the covenant believer. Where he says, I will never, he's, well, he says, I will you. Nothing will separate you from my love that is actively at work, protecting and providing. Even if death kills you, or even if enemies kill you. I am your God, and I will care for you and love you 10 billion years. And David exalts, and he says, there's nothing that could make God's people more happy than to know that a God who we run to refuge, who we love his name, and and he blesses the righteous. We sing. We exalt. Enemies are all over. Enemies are from within. They're coming from without. Trials and difficulties come. But my God reigns, my King and my God I love and I run to. And it says, he's a God that he spreads. Oh, this is beautiful. He spreads his protections over us. He's spreading his protection over Sharon in the hospital. He protects his, he spreads his protection over you against COVID. Not to keep you from getting COVID necessarily, but to let COVID, if you ever got it, be a means to glorify him and help you grow in him. 
or just the threat of COVID be a means to help you or whatever it is in your life, all trials, he has spread his protection over all his people and he will care for you to the end. Oh, what a friend we have in God through Jesus Christ. End with this story. Uh, a German pastor named Telek, he, I read this this week, he tells an incident about his early school days. About He was 10 years old. He was, he was a jerk as a kid. And he and his friends, they hated this boy named Hans. Hans he was the kind of student that had a, a lackadaisical, lazy attitude towards his studies. And yet, whenever he was asked a question in class, he'd spout almost everything about that the question and the answer. He just knew everything. For this and many other quirks, Hans was hated by Telek and his friends, and they decided, the whole bunch of them, that they would give him a thrashing. Hence, they decided that the whole bunch uh, would ambush them, but a strange, day hap strange thing happened on the day he was gonna be, they were going to ambush Hans. Hans's father was walking with his son that day to school. His father was one of the most highly respected men in town. I mean, everybody loved him, respected him, looked up to him, the father. And the gang who was going to ambush noticed that what happened when Hans and his father parted in front of the school. They saw how Hans's father stroked his son's hair and patted his cheek with tenderness and love as they parted. And several times... As they were walking away, they would turn and wave goodbye. This was a very, very touching scene to Telek and his friends as they watched in hiding. Telek said that he and his cohorts were very touched, and it, was as it became a collective, if unstated, conclusion that whoever love, was loved by such a father stood under a, a protective taboo and couldn't be hurt or molested. They were gripped by un, an unexpressed awe of a love to this man. And so Hans was spared. One might say he was wrapped round with favor as a shield. And so it is with God's people on earth. Because of the abundance of God's steadfast love, not our righteousness, God's love, grace, we are surrounded by his favor that cares for us, in the midst of our enemies, even those who might kill us. God's favor lasts for eternity and brings rejoicing to the groaning heart. He cares and reaches to the moaning lips of suffering people of God because his name is a strong tower and we run to it. And we are Saved. Oh, what a friend we have in God through Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We are going to conclude by singing an old, somewhat an old song, the last 75 years, a song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And what needless pain we bear, it's because we don't take it to God in prayer. Are you weak and heavy laden, the song goes, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. 
In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find solace there.